In improvisational theatre, there's an adage that says make your partner look good. In leadership and business relationships, this means you can make personal interactions a win-win situation for both you and your colleagues. Welcome to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Speaking with guests and listeners like you, Amy uses her wisdom and wit, leading you along the road to success. Now, here's your host, Amy Carroll. Welcome, everyone, to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. As a communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, I'm delighted to be your host and excited to bring you insights and ideas to help you solve your communication conundrums. This is the 21st episode of my show, Partner Up with Amy Carroll. If you want to find out more about me or what the show's about, feel free to listen to previous episodes on my website, carolcoaching.com, or the voiceamerica.com business channel, or through any of your favorite podcast apps. If you missed last week's show, I interviewed Dr. George Colreiser, a clinical psychologist and former hostage negotiator. George explained how applying the same techniques he used in real-life hostage situations to psychological hostage-taking in daily life, whether it's because we're feeling angry or overwhelmed, can reduce fear and the sense of helplessness while boosting creativity. Be sure to check out this episode from January 15th. Today, my guest is Dr. Suzanne Kreider. Welcome, Suzanne. Hey, thank you, Amy. Good to be here. You know, Suzanne, um, I had the pleasure of finding out about you through a mutual friend of ours, Juliet Jordan, who I interviewed on the show back in October. Yes. And I want to give the listeners a bit of your background so they're going to see why Juliet and I were so enthusiastic about getting you on the show. So, yeah. So give me a minute here. This I want to really give them some, uh, some details about you. So listeners, Suzanne is a neuro leadership trainer and coach. She blends leadership development with an understanding of how the mind works. So Suzanne has helped thousands of people to be more effective. And some of her clients include the Department of the Interior, University of Maryland, the National Institutes of Health, the University of New Mexico, and the Brookings Institution. Her book, The Mind to Lead, explains how leadership coaching mod, her model, leadership coaching model, is about being calm, confident, and powerful. Suzanne has a PhD from the University of New Mexico, an MS from George Washington University, a BA or a BS rather from the University of Georgia, and graduated from the corporate coaching program in 2001. So you're coming up on 20 years pretty soon. We're just right. about, yeah. Suzanne's the co-founder and host of the award-winning public radio series, Peace Talks Radio. That's peace as in love and peace. So you should definitely check that out. That's right. <laughs> like peace, man. <laughs> and it focuses on nonviolent conflict resolution. They, in fact, I was just asking before we started the show, asking Suzanne how what possessed her to start this. And she shared that she and her partner at the time, um, were inspired after the attacks in 2001, so they kicked it off in 2003. So there is a whole rich resource of interviews that you're going to want to check out. Suzanne has practiced mindfulness meditation since 1985 and is certified through Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California and teaches classes on this. So now that the listeners have a sense of what you bring to this conversation, Suzanne, I really would like for you to share with listeners 
your what you call your a success story that you had from the past of surviving a congenital brain bleed. Now that's happened back in 2012, right? Correct. So walk us through that whole experience. Yeah, so congenital means is something that happened in the womb. So when I was developing, I didn't develop the correct um, you know, like connections in the brain. And for some reason, it didn't pop until I was 57. So thank you so much for that introduction. You guys have in your head now, like, who I am. And then that was who I was. And then I was doing a training in 2012 for the Brookings Institute. There were probably about 40 leaders in the group. I did all day. And then I drove home back to Washington, D.C. from the training and um, I was fine. I walked into my apartment, took my luggage. I was unpacking. I had a slight headache, a little tiny one. I never get headaches. I thought, well, I should eat something. So I did. I was eating something. I was talking out loud to myself because that's what people do sometimes when they're alone. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I sounded garbled. I thought, oh, no. Uh... So I'm going to call a friend. I called a friend. And uh, I said, this is Suzanne Kreider. And she said, I don't know you just said. You're bumbling. Go to a hospital. Wow. And so I stood up and I could hardly walk. It happened that quickly. I like to say I went from 57 to 88 in three seconds. And there's nothing against people who are 88. It's just that I wasn't 88. Right. So I went to the hospital and you know, I was in an ambulance, blah, blah, blah. I was lucky because they took me to Georgetown Hospital. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, all of a sudden I was like a baby. And it was very unpleasant. What happened was it's kind of like um, a brain bleed, an aneurysm. And yeah. luckily, I did not lose consciousness. I've learned since then stuff I didn't really want to know about what an arterial venal malformation is. So that was what was happening in my brain, if you can imagine. It was near my cerebellum, which is in the back of the brain. It controls things like walking, talking, balance, you know, important stuff like that. So anyway, uh, my success story is I just kept going. I didn't work for three years. I tried very hard after that to get jobs. I had been self-employed and super fit, like, you know, hiker, biker, backpacker, yoga enthusiast, most of my life. So all that stuff was gone. It was a big crap on Wow. I can't imagine the level of um, acceptance you had to go through over and over again with things that you lost either temporary or permanently. Yes. And I don't think I've completely accepted it Mm -hmm. but a lot of it is about what I try to teach leaders which is not to be in the past you know I can Mm. think oh my gosh I was this I was that I wrote this book blah blah well that's my identity yep so that causes a lot of stress actually because Uh I'm not right now in the present moment Mm -hmm. so I learned the hard way Oh, yeah. And and it sounds like you're bringing that learning and those experiences to the work you're doing today. I want to I want to ask, though, now let me rewind even further. How did you first get into this field? 
Okay, well, my master's from George Washington is in exercise physiology. I was working in a really kind of high-class fitness facility where we also did cardiac rehab. And I got really interested um, in health education. So I was helping to teach classes on like weight loss, stress management, smoking cessation. Mm -hmm. And in the classes, I can remember, it was probably like four or five people in a circle. And I would teach them how to do deep breathing and relaxing by the breath. Mm -hmm. So I remembered this guy came back into a class and said, you know, I can do deep breathing all day long, but my boss is still a jerk. <laughs> no amount of deep breathing is going to change that behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I realized then, oh, I'm working with the wrong people. Okay. Health education is a really cool thing, but I need to work with bosses. So that's where I went back got my PhD and started working and doing coaching um, with bosses. Mm, because so much, so much of that, the boss's behavior you probably saw was triggering a lot of the stress that these people were experiencing. Absolutely. Mm, mm. Okay. So now I want to get into your book and it is chock full of tools, techniques, advice for listeners. So, uh, the title, remember, it's called The Mind to Lead, and you're going to be able to find this book on Amazon. It's described as a captivating introduction to the emerging fields of neural leadership and mindful leadership. And I have to say, I have not heard that term enough, mindful leadership. I, I feel like we're going to be continuing to hear more of that. Is that a term that you feel like You've heard, I mean, you, it's used to describe your book. Is that something that you've been using for a long time? I had not because, well, there's a whole um, movement called mindfulness. Right. And mindfulness is basically a takeoff on meditation. Right. Which, you know, so, so I had never really used that term, but I'm happy to have people call it mindful leadership. Yeah. And, and something else that's interesting for, leader, uh, for listeners, a after applying your recommendations from the book, leaders will have a greater ability to do several things. One, stop overreacting to bad news and difficult people. Oh, praise the Lord. Let go of fears of being in charge and make tough decisions and enjoy challenging conversations with employees, clients, and your boss. Yes. It does all that. It has amazing success stories of people I've actually coached. Well, I want to hear some of those success stories. So as we're going through them, feel free to share those examples. Okay. Let's go with the first one. This first one was um, what you call negative narrative. What is an example of a negative narrative? So I coached this guy who was really more of a mediator type. He was really just trying to get people in his employment to get along. But his boss was more the director style. She was more tough. And so he had this thought, oh, no, she's trying to make me be like her. She's yeah. trying to make me be directive. And I really like this mediation style. So we looked at his thought because a lot of times people um, just get glommed onto this negative thought. Like, oh, she wants me to be like her. And I, what I want people to realize is 
the brain is like stuck on negativity. That's what kept us alive because sure. we looked around and, you know, we saw like a predator or something. So we get stuck on this negative stuff. So anyway, what I try to help people do is investigate their negative thoughts. First thing is write down the thought. She's trying to make Suzanne, let me interrupt. Um, and you might have said this a moment ago and I might have missed it. What what's your definition of negative? Why would, how would someone know if their thought is negative? Cause it's causing them stress. Yes. Okay. Clear. Yeah. Okay. So please go ahead. At, at a higher level, we even investigate positive thoughts, mm. but most people aren't there yet. We just focus mostly on negatives. <laughs> one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. One thing at a time. That stresses people out. So yeah. First thing is you want to write, just be aware of your thinking. It's yeah. hard for many people. It's like this thing is going on, but you don't want to listen to what it's saying because it's so icky. So you write it down. Uh-huh. Okay, she's trying to make me be like her. And then I taught people um, a technique I learned from Byron Katie. It's called the work. Uh huh. Yeah, you and I are both big fans of Byron. Yeah. Yeah. Or as she likes to be called, Katie. She's great. Yeah. And she has like four simple questions. Is it true? So we ask, is it really true she's trying to make you be like her? Second question is, can you absolutely know? Like, are you the ultimate? You absolutely know it's true? Yeah. But we just decide, oh, yeah, I know what's going on. Well, you know what's going on for your perspective, but no one else's. And there's, what, 8 billion people or something? That's a lot to know, 8 billion perspectives. <laughs> yeah, and the good news is you only have to know the other person's in this situation or guess <laughs> at. You can guess at it, but that's how we're doing. We're just, you know, we don't know what she's really thinking. So, so, so what, what I think I understand is you're right. It's not about figuring out necessarily the other person's point of view so much as realizing that you've made up a story here, that it may not actually be true. Exactly. Okay, got it. Yeah. So the third question is, how do I react when I think that thought? When I think, oh, she's trying to make me be like her, I react like, oh, no, that's awful. I get angry. Defensive. I get defensive. That's a great word. Yeah. So that's interesting information. Fourth question is, who would I be without that thought? So I'm here. I'm talking to her. But I'm not having the thought, oh, she's trying to make me be like her. Who would I be? Oh, gosh, I'd be listening to her. And then I'd be going back to my employees and being myself. Mm-hmm. So be super spacious. I like how you say that, super spacious. And so I think this is a great moment for us to plug to listeners the uh, the work by Byron Katie. You, it's literally thework.com, I think, is her website. And... I I don't know, Suzanne, if you know this, I did the nine-day course with Byron Katie in Germany about 10, 12 years ago. Oh, it was amazing. And I know she does it normally, um, pre-COVID times. Uh, um, also, I think in California or some, something at least once a year. And, and there's many other options for people. And there's loads on on the internet. So that's a strong recommendation to listeners to check out the work by Byron Katie to really help us not become 
uh, like we talking, I was talking about with my guest last week, a hostage to our thoughts to shift us from um, reaction to response to choice. Yes, I love that. And I've never done a nine day. I often have done mental cleanse, which I think is about four or five days. Mm-hmm. And being with her in person is such a high. Yeah, it sure is. Yes, we're, we're, we're fans. <laughs> Yeah. Anything else about that technique that you want to add before we move to the next one? No. Just okay. that it worked. It really right. worked for him. Um, the writing it down part. She is a big fan of that. And I hear that over and over again. There's something about just moving it from our thinking to on paper that does seem to shift things faster for people. Yes, they've even done research on journaling, not related to the work, how important it is to put things on paper. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I keep thinking I'm going to become one of those people who writes stuff down. (laughs) And I haven't gotten there yet, (laughs) except (laughs) like you, I I hear that it's really good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this... A second technique you called for you call it forgetting the goal. Tell us what you mean by that. Oh gosh, many of the leaders I coach are really nice people, and so they go into conversations with an employee and they have an idea. Oh, I need to set a boundary, but then they get in these conversations and they let the employee take control. Mm. Okay, they pull them away from their goal. So this happens. The employee pulls the manager away from the intended goal. Exactly. Got it. Because the employee doesn't want to talk about anything difficult. So what I did in this particular situation is like Rick had competed with Catherine to get a promotion. Well, he got the job and then she became very lax. He wasn't really into her anyway. He didn't think she was that good of an employee. So anyway, he had to go in and talk to her about doing certain things. So he had a goal in mind. But once he went in and said, hey, let's talk about A. And she said, oh, you know, but B, C, and D are so exciting. So again, he's such a nice person. He gets pulled off Hmm. his goal. He forgot what his goal was. Also, it's what's interesting. And her name, she was Catherine. What was, what did you call him? Rick. Rick. So for me, I also wonder if Rick, because he's already this nice guy and there was that history of them competing for the same role, there may have been that sense of guilt or discomfort that Rick didn't want to come in heavy handed. So then he overcompensated, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. Mm. They were colleagues. They were at the same level. Right. And now, all of a sudden, he's, you know, superior. So that's a big part of it, too. Yeah. So he's overcompensating, not wanting to throw his weight around. And she's the way I describe that behavior, I call it smoke and mirrors, wanting to distract, you know, like little kids who who do the mommy, 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 look what I made at school today. Sweetie, it's time for bed. Mommy, 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 I forgot to brush my teeth. Sweetie, it's time for bed. Mommy, 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 let me show you what I'm going to be doing for daddy's birthday next week. And And, you know, the kids doing all the smoke and mirrors and the parent, you know, so this is one of the partner mindset techniques I use is what, and tell me if this fits with what your point is, is that it's the broken record technique. Say what you need to say 
and, and keep repeating it calmly and consistently until that other person understands, no, we're not moving off topic A until we've discussed everything we need to discuss. Right. Yes. It's like a broke Greg. You're absolutely right. I call it building a fence. So Catherine is just going to run around, okay, the whole field until we build a fence around her. Mm. So we're going to build a fence by repeating, like you said, the broken record. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, she probably had parents who let her do that. Like she probably stayed up till midnight just saying, oh, no, let's do this, mommy and daddy. And she got away with it. And so Rick has to be a different kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important for him. He did this is to say that to say, oh, that's so interesting. B, C, and D are so interesting. Let's talk about that some other time. Right now, we're going to talk about A. And that's beautiful. And that is, to me, that's how Rick can stay in integrity because he's remaining respectful and kind and still pushing the agenda forward as it needs to be. And that's the same thing when you know use the broken record approach you don't get to be snarky or sarcastic or exasperated. It's got to, you got to stay calm, cool, and collected as you repeat yourself. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's why I help leaders a lot. I call it becoming comfortable with the discomfort because what leaders often do is if someone else is uncomfortable because they don't want to talk about a, then the leader takes that on. Okay, and we can't do that. We have to be in our own stuff and be actually okay with their discomfort. Yeah, hard to do. It's very hard to do, and I think people think they're supposed to feel good about it or comfortable, and it's okay to not feel comfortable and do it nonetheless. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I'm curious to know that you had this third technique. I want to see if we can discuss this before we have to go for a break. This one is called too much tell. Why is telling like Teflon? Telling is like Teflon because if we could just tell people what to do, that would be great. They just run out and do it, but we can't. So telling is just like it doesn't stick. It just slides right off like Teflon coating. What we're going to do is create something in their mind that's sticky it's like Velcro. Uh-huh. So the what is what is that then? So um this is a story of uh, a true story too of how I coached someone who had an employee who um you know was a really smart dude, but he just was making his employees feel really ashamed. He was very shaming and blaming. And so what this leader did was she would just go in and say, Randall, stop it. Don't do that. And it's just like, you can't just tell people stop. That's like me saying, Suzanne, lose weight. It's not mm. going to happen. You yeah. know? It's, so we have to create a new way to get them more involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's through asking, the, how do you create the Velcro? Yeah, you create Velcro by asking questions, getting the employee involved. See, if I just tell you something, it's going to slide right off. But if I ask you something, you have to use your own brain and you have to yes. talk. 
Yes. So that's what this leader did. She said, Randall, what's going on when you're actually angry and shaming someone? Mm-hmm. And he didn't know. He had to stop and look when he was doing it. So it and, took time. Yeah. And what's what that makes me think of is a conversation I had last week with George about I said, you know, we were talking about powerful questions. And I said, you know, George, one of my questions is I just reflect and I say to the person, tell me more. And he said, well, that's actually not a question. That's still a command. And if you're dealing with someone who has um, authority issues, they may not react well to that. He said, all you have to do is is to tweak it a bit by saying, would you tell me more? And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. You know, so that really phrasing things as full-on questions and showing interest and curiosity can help people to, as you said, it, it, it shifts them from being passive to activating their mind and, and engaging themselves in the discussion. Right. Absolutely. Hey, listen, uh, Suzanne, we're going to take a break right now. Um, listeners, if you want to find out more about Suzanne, you can check out her website, SuzanneKreider.com, and that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-K-R-Y-D-E-R.com. Also, be sure to check out her radio show, PeaceTalksRadio.com. And as I mentioned earlier, you can find her book, Mind to Lead, on Amazon. When we come back from break, we're going to be hearing more from Suzanne and more about her book, A Mind to Lead, which shows busy how busy leaders can improve productivity and effectiveness by incorporating practical brain-based techniques. Stay tuned. You're listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you have colleagues, family members, or neighbors that just drive you crazy sometimes? Do you occasionally find yourself feeling disrespected, mistreated, or annoyed by others? As a no-nonsense communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, Amy Carroll may have a solution for you. For over 35 years, Amy has studied status and power dynamics, what sabotages relationships, results, and how to get desired outcomes in business and personal interactions. Make Your Partner Look Good is a philosophy from improvisational theatre, as well as Amy's favourite mantra. For the last 20 years, she has been using her superhero powers to inspire individuals and multinationals around the globe to transform their communication and tap into their own partner powers. With concrete behavior changes in voice, body language, words, and attitude, Amy shows clients what to keep and what to change to get more of what you want more often with less hassle. Visit carolcoaching.com today. That's C-A-R-R-O-L-L coaching.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. We want participation from you. Feel free to send an email to amy at carolcoaching.com. Now, back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Here again is Amy. 
Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Kreider, a neuroleadership trainer and coach. And before the break, we were talking about um, some of her tools and her techniques that she talks about in her book, A Mind to Lead, how we help busy leaders to improve their productivity and effectiveness by applying these brain-based techniques. So we're going to keep talking about these techniques. The next one, uh, Suzanne, is the what you call failing to modulate fight or flight. Let's talk about that. Tell me more about it. Yeah, so because a lot of my clients are such nice people, they don't want to say no, and they don't want to set boundaries. But boundaries are good because they allow us to do things that, you know, we need to do. So this is an example uh, with my client named Dick. Okay. Who worked for the federal government. He also did, like, free presentations. The guy was an incredible public speaker. So people would come up to him and say, hey, can you do X, Y, Z? And he always said yes. Well, what that did was it really overloaded him. It made him unable physically and, you know, psychologically to get stuff done for his own job. Wow. Yeah. So that was a real bummer. So um, again, because his usual response, and this is what leaders often do, is they do either the fight, they get angry, like, no, I don't want to do that. But he didn't do that. He would just fight, like Mm. flee, like just say yes. So again, I had to teach him how to deal with his own discomfort and realize when he said no, he may see, you know, images of people who he's saying no to, who get upset, and they're uncomfortable too. Is it really about allowing the discomfort? Yeah, you know, um, the work that I do with this model, my sister developed predator-prey partner. What I hear you you describing is the the predator uh, is the fight and the prey is the flight. And neither is sustainable. And there's a big cost to us, and the relationships and the outcomes um, when we flip flop between those two. So then how do you walk someone through this? Let's talk about Dick. What did you do with him? Well, there's a third F that people sometimes don't know about called freeze. This was fight, flight, or freeze. And if you, um, you know, Think about the opossum. The opossum does that. So if a, if a opossum sees a predator, and this is kind of what Dick did, if an opossum sees a predator coming towards them, they just play dead. Yeah. <laughs> and they wait for the predator to go away. Mm-hmm. So um, what I help people do is realize, oh, what does it feel like to go dead? Or what does it feel like to just say yes when you're not really feeling it? So the first mm-hmm. thing is to connect the feeling of saying yes, saying no. And I told him to start with things that were really simple. You know, like, I don't know, someone says, oh, did you say you want latte? Oh, no. (laughs) I said, I just want plain coffee. Mm -hmm. You start with something super simple and just notice what that feels like to say no. Mm -hmm. Even though you think you're right. And then when you get higher levels of people saying, oh, can you do this? Can you be on this project with us? We would love to have you on the panel. Then you can more easily say no. Okay. So it's about um, also sensing in the body what it feels like to say no. 
And for many people, is you can feel it right now if I say, no, you can't do that. It feels like a constriction in the yeah. chest or the yeah. stomach. Yes. Yeah. And my sense is that it probably triggers that feeling of fear and anxiety for people when they push back and say no. Exactly. So what happened with Dick? So he learned over time. He took really simple, small steps at first, saying no, mm-hmm. it's not a latte. And then, <laughs> and then when people would come up to him, he was prepared. So much of it is about being ready. So he mm-hmm. knows when he's, you know, ending the uh, presentation and he looks and sees someone coming towards him. That's a trigger right there, even before they say anything. So when, when a person comes up, you can start noticing sensations. Oh, here she comes. <laughs> here comes someone. Cause it's always the same person, actually. <laughs> a named Susan. <laughs> she would come up. They'd known each other a long time. And she kept asking him to do all this stuff. He kept saying yes. Right. So Susan came up and he had these sensations in his body and he's looking at her. And he, again, you want to start with something nice. Like you said, gosh, this feels so good that you asked me. Thank you so much. I'm going to say an answer that you may not like. Nice. And then you let her respond. Oh, no, Dick, what are you going to say? No, no, we have to have you. And then Dick says, I'm going to say no, because I really want to be able to spend this time on my own job. So Mm -hmm. you give an explanation. Yeah. So what I hear two things from that is, well, I hear the broken record that he might have to say it over and over. And frankly, saying no to Susan, I think in that example is a, is a big stretch because she's so used to Dick saying yes, that that is going to come as quite a surprise for her, uh, as opposed to him saying no to a complete stranger for the first time. So that, that was, that's a, that's significant. Um, And then I also am hearing a, you know, you're, he's preparing the other person by saying this might come as a shock. So she's already, there's already building what I call a cushion of preparing the receiver for bad news, which then you're slowing down the exchange, which slows down the impact of the shock. It's like shock and slow motions, which is, does not have the same impact. Right. Yeah. And then you give an explanation. That's so important. And oh, thank then you. you can also help Susan. So you can, again, shift back to the stickiness of asking questions. So I taught him, hey, well, what's a question you could ask Susan? Oh, well, who else could you get instead of me? Then uh-huh. she starts thinking about the future and who yeah. else? Oh, I could get blah, blah, blah. And what do you think about that? Could I call you and maybe you could help me? Oh, then he has to say no again. Oh, no, let's <laughs> let's figure this out right now. Yeah, you're right. Because uh, that's another thing you've probably heard of some research that people love explanations. You know, give, us, give them the reason why. Even when the reason why may not be particularly impressive, it's still like, uh, no, I have to say no. I'm saying no because I have to say no. <laughs> There's technically not an explanation, except right. even that's like people, their brains go, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's why I have people plan everything out. He knew exactly what he was going to say. He was going to say, no, I can't because I really have to do this for my job. Yeah. Who else could you get? So yeah. you don't go in cold. You go in with a plan. Yes. 
And what I'm hearing is the rehearsing, the importance of, of being ready because under stress, as people know, the brain freezes up and then it doesn't function as well. Maybe even are having an amygdala hijacking. So your executive function area is really not functioning at all, perhaps. And so the rehearsing, what you're doing is creating new pathways in the brain. So there's something that is available even when the brain is having an amygdala hijacking. So don't underestimate the importance of practice. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning rehearsal. So as a coach, I would rehearse with him and I would say, find someone else you can rehearse with, have someone practice um, saying no and having different reactions. I always say, tell that person to have a positive, a negative, and a neutral reaction. So do it at least three different ways. That's fantastic. Yeah, because that's the greatest fear of, oh my God, if they have a negative reaction, can I handle it? Right. And so you're having them practice. And it's weird that even people, listeners might be thinking, well, you're practicing. No, it doesn't have the same impact. Oh, yeah, it does. We still can have a physiological reaction, even in a silly role play. Exactly. And in my book, The Mind to Lead, I tell people to write down exactly what you would do if the person has a negative reaction. Mm-hmm. Exactly what to do if they have a positive reaction. Mm-hmm. So you have it all planned out. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And these, what you're describing, these are training wheels. You won't have to do that all the time and every time. Um, Though if you do it enough, you create enough, the the, the awareness, you're creating the new pathways, it'll be available to you when you need it. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's why, you know, some people eventually opt out of coaching because they get so good at this. Thank goodness. Right. You know, it's a good sign when people don't need us anymore. Yes. So um, this next tool that you talk about, forgetting feelings, what does it mean when someone at work says to you, I want to have a beer with you? Tell us about that. So beer is um, a tool I developed, B-E-E-R. I'm not really much of a drinker. I thought that if I used that word, it would be something, a good mnemonic device. People could just remember beer. And is it related to um, um, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg and his assertiveness technology? So this is not exactly how he does it, but it's what I developed. Okay. So beer stands for, you say the behavior, the effect, the emotion, and a request. And what that means is emotion, effect, request. The other order. Yeah. Behavior, effect, emotion, request. Right. So this was a a really interesting case study with um, uh, one of my clients named Bill. Okay. And Bill was a consultant. He was a contractor. But he was working full time. And what happened was his team would develop times for meetings when they knew he was not available. So he couldn't come. He got really upset. Why did they not want him at the meetings? 
Did he because he was so aggressive and so hostile. Oh, of course. This is not the act. This is not like the standard client I have. I usually have these really nice people. He was a really <laughs> reactive, really angry and hostile person. Mm. And so these people were kind of, you know, smart to say, well, we don't want him at meetings. But then he got even angrier because it was really critical. He was the tech guy. And it was really critical that he'd be at these meetings. Can I, can I? ask you when did he figure out and if you if it's a story you want to tell me in order just can let me know the when did he find out that the reason he was being excluded from these meetings was because of his attitude and his aggressiveness well it took a while you know and they they didn't do it all the time but he would go to meetings and he'd be hostile so then they figured out this was a workaround for them right and they figured it out though when did he find out yeah, well, I'm not sure exactly how long it took him to figure it out. No one told him he had to figure it out on his own? I think he might have, and he may have asked someone. Like, I think he went to the people and said, hey, you know, I need to be at this meeting. And they just said, no, it's okay. We don't need you there. And he knew he needed to be there. Right. Yeah. So maybe his common sense or maybe someone else in his personal life might have given him some suggestions. Well, gee, Bill, did you say his name was? Yes. You know, G. Bill, you know, maybe you're a jerk sometimes. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Thank he God for honest people in our lives. <laughs> he knew he was and he, know, a and jerk. He knew that that's why, yeah, that's why he hired me and he had a therapist. And so he, he, Fantastic. Knew, he, was, he knew he was difficult. I'll just say difficult. I don't want and, to label him as a jerk. You know, and well, we can all be jerks. You I know I can be. Yeah, um, yeah. And Suzanne, I have to say, those are the kind of clients I love working with because I'm a recovering jerk. Oh, good yeah, for you. I'm a recovering predator. And I get why people behave that way. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that was just a side point. So I, I, I'm fascinated by the story. That's why I'm going to like ask all those questions. Okay, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. We can't make people be different, but we can help people say how they're feeling. So. It was in a meeting, you know, I just, I'm really, I really promote laser. So don't say too much because people, it can't stick on people's brains. Just say a little bit. So I taught him behavior. You just hit this, uh, Bill. This is Bill talking in the meeting. When you guys schedule a meeting for times that I can't attend, that's a behavior. Okay, so... Suzanne, I think it's really interesting for listeners to understand that you mentioned Marshall uh, Rosenberg briefly. Yes. What people might, listeners might not realize is he's the one who back in the 60s started to develop nonviolent communication. You and I both have been trained by him. I was in actually in your state of New Mexico some 15 years ago doing a, an intensive training with him. And so what your listeners, what you're hearing is Suzanne's version um, and her own approach to helping people use this nonviolent communication to, how do I want to say it, Um, improve the, the communication during delicate, difficult conversations. Is that accurate, Suzanne? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Okay. So back to Bill. So yeah. Thanks for letting me cut you off. So he, the behavior, he, he identifies when you guys do this and you have meetings without me. 
Yes, the effect. So it's B-E-E-R. Effect is I can't give input that's needed. Okay. I can't give input. The emotion is I'm angry. What a surprise. <laughs> I'm hurt. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, that he, that's a big leap for Bill. That's huge for any of because we're we gotta be vulnerable. One, we gotta be aware, and then we have to admit it, and that feels scary and vulnerable. Yeah, and the request. So I request in the future, you set the meeting times when I can attend. Oh my gosh, Suzanne, I love this acronym. How come? One, because I can hold on to, I love the beer analogy and I, and I love, I want to have a beer with you. It, it's such a play on terms and concepts um, saying, I want to engage with you in a different way. I want to be honest and open and vulnerable, and I'm going to make a specific request. Um, and so that's, uh, so, so for all those reasons, it, it's very attractive. Oh, great. Yeah. And um, when I do trainings, I, I suggest that people start with someone really easy. Don't start with the hardest person. Do a beer. So in training, sometimes I'll say, now I want everyone to invite someone they work with to the training and we're going to do beers. Mm -hmm. So it's so cool because the employee who's in the training can teach the other person how to do a beer. Right. And then they give a beer and they receive a beer. Yeah. So this helps people feel a little bit more comfortable to slowly increase the difficulty level. Yeah. One of the things I added to Marshall's model is something I call a safety net, which is after the request, I then say, so let's say I make a request to you. So you, you, I, if I'm Bill and you're the colleague and I say, Suzanne, would you be willing to include me in the meetings? Now, the outcome is the idea is that you would say yes to that. Right. And you say, yeah. yeah, sure, Amy. And then I would say to you, that's great. Thank you for agreeing to that. And in case you forget, um, mm-hmm. you know, what should we do? Or in case you forget, I'll follow up with you. Or in case you forget. So, so that I call it the safety net because you may have every good intention when you say, yes, I'll do that to your, you know, Girl Scout honors. You have that intention to absolutely do that. And then human nature kicks in and you either forget or it's not a habit yet. So the safety net is, you know, checking that I'm going to somehow follow up or let's discuss what happens if that you, you know, you don't do the thing that you've agreed to. Um, So I think that that's a very powerful addition that, so like safety net. So beers, you can put an S at the, at the end. Yes. (laughs) Let's have beers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love that. I call it contingency, but safety. Oh, nice. Because we can add beers. And I also want to say that with this model, some people are like, no, huh? Because emotion, forget. I don't do feelings at work. However, we're always having feelings. So what I like to explain to people is there is brain research about what's called the affect labeling and affect is like an emotion it's my affect it's my emotion what they're finding is that when someone can say they're feeling yes. it actually lowers the reaction in the limbic or the emotional system in the brain and increases the ability to think with their prefrontal cortex 
So saying a feeling is not babyish. It's actually very cool. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say it a different way. Tell me if this is accurate. The way I understand it is when we label our emotions, either to ourselves or to others, it's a form of self-empathy. And it immediately calms us down. You, you would agree with that? Yeah, that's beautiful. So there's nothing else has to happen. I mean, we want other things to happen and think other things can happen, though nothing else has to happen for that alone, just labeling I'm really feeling shocked or I'm embarrassed or I'm feeling ashamed or I'm feeling um, disappointed or I'm feeling um, flabbergasted. That's a good one. Gobsmacked. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. And that's sometimes enough just to, for us to go, whoo, and to trigger that parasympathetic nervous system to kick in. So, Suzanne, um, let's name some of those websites for listeners. There's the cnvc.org, mm-hmm. and then the other one is the nvctraining.org, right? Right. So, those are two NVC websites people can check out. Also, on my website, People can go to resources and I've got a print of those lists because Suzanne, that you talked about the feelings. They say, you know, most of us can maybe identify maybe eight, 10, 12 feelings that we have. When you look at this list, there's just, you know, columns of, of feelings for us to choose from. So I think it's important that people see it as in a way, almost like we're learning a new language when we're learning to identify our feelings and our needs. So people can find that list on my website. That's great. I also like to simplify stuff. And so the four cross-cultural feelings, there's only four. Mad, sad, glad, those all rhyme, afraid. Mad, sad, glad, afraid. And you said these are cross-cultural. Say more about that. That means that they've done studies across all cultures. Mm. And they found that all people, regardless of where they live or whatever, their skin color, gender, age, have, have examples of the main four feelings. Okay. Okay. Very cool. And as we were talking about this, that something that um, popped into my mind was a book that I read that I can highly recommend I don't know if you ever heard of this book. It's called Thanks for the Feedback. Oh, sounds yeah. great. Yeah, and the writers are Stone and Heen, H-E-E-N, Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. Um, mm-hmm. So listeners, you may want to pick up this book because it, we're notoriously bad at receiving and giving feedback. And so this book really helps you to, um, you know, some of the things that Suzanne has been sharing today you may uh, be supported in that book. So that's a recommendation I have. So um, listen, we only have a few minutes left, Suzanne. So I want to talk about just a minute or two at the most about a topic that we uh, share, which is privilege. During my interview, October 2nd with Juliet, she talked about how she had recently discovered her own white privilege. Though, you know, we know privilege is often associated with skin and uh, race, we also know uh, skin color and and race, it encompasses so much more. In a moment, what are your thoughts on privilege? Yes, well, I'm glad you mentioned skin color because as a white person, that's, it's huge. Skin color is a major privilege that I'm not aware of. 
And I also want to say that there's another uh, kind of privilege that many people are not aware of, and it's ability. So ability relates to, um, I'd say like in the U.S. where I live, probably 95% of people I see seem to have physical ability. And as a person who had that for 57 years, I just wasn't aware of it. Yeah. But when I became disabled, because of this congenital ring bleed in my, near my cerebellum, it impacted my walking and also my talking. You may hear I sound a little slurry. Mm. That's because of the impact on my cerebellum. It's almost mm. like um, a feeling of being drunk. I don't yep. feel drunk all the time. But when you see me walk, you might think, oh, my gosh, she looks really drunk. Well, I'm not. <laughs> And so what I want people to realize is that most people live in an able-bodied world mm-hmm. and they take that privilege for granted. Yeah. But people who have a physical disability, um, either it's something about walking or it might be vision, it might be hearing. Um, oftentimes those people are labeled as weird or um, and sometimes the labeling impacts a person so they don't want to go out. Mm-hmm. That's what I want people to recognize. Okay, Suzanne, thank you for that. I, we have just a minute left, and um, I want to wrap up now with a call for action to check out Suzanne's book, Mind to Lead, available on Amazon. Also, lead, you guys can reach out to me on my email, amy at carolcoaching.com, two R's, two L's, to share questions, comments, discoveries you have about your own communication challenges and clashes. You can check out Suzanne's website, suzannecrider.com, and also remember to check out peacetalksradio.com. Feel free to connect with me on my social media channels, Amy Carol Coaching. If you're ready to take your superhero partner powers into the next decade. Join me for one of my online leadership presence courses. And you can find out more about that at carolcoaching.com. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It was great. Cool. And thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Happy partnering, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Join Amy for another edition next Friday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central European Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, make it a great week. And remember, make your partner look good.